Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Waystar Royco from Succession. I'm Paula Sizek, here with my colleagues, Kim Perkins, Jane Garza. We're members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that helps teams adopt new ways of working. Every month, we like to take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss some fictional leaders and organizations, talking about what works, what doesn't, and then we like to talk about the simple tools that they and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. This month, since it's Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about family and family business, specifically the Roy family from Succession. Logan Roy, the founder of a multi-billion dollar Waystar Royco, that is a mouthful, <laughs> suffers a stroke in the first episode, starting off a season-long struggle for the control of the company. We're just looking at season one for this podcast, so spoiler warning from here on out. Yeah, we'll probably do season two in a couple in a couple months when we've had a chance yes, to digest please. it. Yes, please. I'm dying to talk about it. I went ahead and started watching it. I've seen the last... I haven't seen the last episode. I spoiled myself and I read what happens in the last mm. episode of season two, so I already know what's going on. Then you're further along than me. I haven't finished it yet. Oh, so I shouldn't tell you? Is please, it please no, don't. No spoilers? Okay. All right. Got it. Um, yeah. So let me actually just start with that. And I might edit this out. What did you actually like about Succession? Why are you such a fan? Um, so I, I, I got to say, like, when I started watching it, and even before I've seen it advertised a thousand times to me by HBO and haven't been that interested, because it's like, the topic doesn't interest me that much, it's like rich people problems, which doesn't necessarily <laughs> something I die for. But um, season two has been really interesting, because I think they're navigating a lot of the stuff that um, I think it's just got it, like every episode is a difficult conversation among a bunch of people. And I find that really fascinating to watch. And also they're navigating a lot of stuff that we tend to help companies with, um, like a dying industry, um, various people taking over a company. I'm trying to talk about it without spoiling things, but <laughs> basically anyway, I just, I've found it interesting, kind of the intricacies of it now that I know all the players. So you're telling me that in your free time, you like doing exactly the same thing that you do for money <laughs> during work hours. It's sad, but true, I guess. And I think that might be part of why I haven't really gotten into it, even though I watched the requisite episodes. Well, I guess we know who's really committed to the <laughs> job. You know, the cli our clients I can sympathize with, and I find these characters much less sympathetic, to be quite honest. Yeah. So, Jane, you brought up a great point in regards to difficult conversations, candid conversations. We're actually going to be talking about that later on today in this episode. Mm. So, so get ready. Okay. Suspense. A lot of people have compared Succession to Arrested Development, and there's there's a lot of overlap. I actually think Succession is a dramatic version of Arrested Development. It is just told from Jobs' point of view, right? He's, he's actually a stand-in for Kendall. Uh, but there's another show on HBO right now that also is looking at family business, which has many of the same themes. That is The Righteous Gemstones, and that's about a family that essentially owns a megachurch. Why do you guys think that family business is such a ripe topic? Like, why is there so much discussion of this? Oh, man, it goes back to King Lear, right? <laughs> as far as the dynamics so where we're both trying to be close to people, uh, but also wrestling power. And it's always kind of a, a, a difficult thing to put personal relationships and family relationships together because it's about maintaining harmony, yet wrestling, yet, yet having a power struggle in the background. That was a very cultured uh, reference. <laughs> You're talking about King Lear and Othello. I was like, Arrested Development. <laughs> yeah, much. my brain went to Bob's Burgers. <laughs> Who has the PhD in the room? Let's see. But my point being that it's, it, it's perennial because there's just so much um, about of timeless tensions in human interactions, I think. 
what's your experience in working with or possibly in family businesses? Yeah, I'm, I worked in a family business for um, like five, almost seven years, actually. And it was really fascinating. Um, I learned a lot about organizations in general, but then there's like the slice of it that feels very family, family business-esque. So I'm excited to apply a lot of that to the conversation today. Um, but I think it just adds a whole new layer of complexity. With every decision that you're making, you're affecting more than one type of relationship. Like you're affecting the business relationship and the family relationship, and it, it ends up making more consequences for everything down the road. Was the family business that you worked in analogous to Waystar? It was not. Did you did you have to deal with the backstabbing and the criminal undertones? <laughs> I did not. It was much smaller. Um, it was like a growing smaller business, about 150 employees that grew to like about 200. Um, so a different stage of, of business, but still a lot of the like familial, how do we make these decisions? It might slow us down because we're worried about how it might affect people. And I actually feel like the version of family business that I worked in um, actually brought more empathy into work, almost to a fault, because they treated everyone like family. We've worked with several organizations in which people have said, well, working here, it's like your family. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's not. It is, you know, a publicly owned conglomerate. It is, it's long divorced from any family that may have started it. But a lot of times people on teams feel like it's a family when you, there, you have a certain commitment to your team members, when you have a certain expanded sense of self, like you're all in this together. Um, but it is, you know, it's still not a family in that you don't have some of those really primal blood ties that tend to muddy the waters yeah it makes for uncomfortable expectations too because Mm -hmm. if you treat people like family and are extremely giving in one way and then um i don't know in a week someone asks for a raise and you say no because of these business reasons it starts it gives people whiplash a little bit they're like wait what am i am i family or is this business am i on a team i don't really understand what the rules are anymore yeah and i think that for um you know when you think about motivation equity as one of the big drivers of motivation. Mm-hmm. And and so there's a whole motivation theory that is all about, I look at my colleague or if it's a family sister and say, well, how come they are getting a bigger slice of the pie than I am? And, the, you know, anybody who has been around children know that they're constantly doing that, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to make the water glasses exactly equal or there's like trouble. And I think that in a family business that just really gets magnified because everybody's got... That way their colleagues are part of their, you know, original childhood traumas and the things that formed them as humans. And that's just a whole other layer of complexity. Going back to Waystar, you can see it in the way that the family treats each other, where like the children will do anything to get a thumbs up from their dad. Like not even a hug, not even an I love you. They're just like, Mm -hmm. please give me like a sign that I'm doing something right. Even they'll like beg, borrow and steal to get there. It's wild. And it's funny because Logan puts a real premium on loyalty. He will, he really wants people who will defend him until the end. And when people like show their true colors, he does not hesitate to fire them in any way, shape or form. Like he gets rid of Frank, who's uh, been with the company, but then there's the coup as they try Mm -hmm. to, you know, there's a vote of no confidence. He immediately fires everybody after that. But then, but then, because it's a family, you have to see some of that fire first, ask questions later is probably part of the reason why everybody's so desperate for mm-hmm. approval because he's never giving any. You basically, you fuck up, you're dead to me, and that if you're growing up with that, that will give you, um, you know, that will form your opinion on what's going on. Yeah, it's one directional loyalty. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and it's a bit manipulative too. He really expects a lot of people and and throws the loyalty in their face as a way of getting them to do what he wants. What about you, Kim? What experience do you have with family business? I have quite a lot of experience because I grew up in one. My parents had an advertising agency in Cleveland. And so my you know, dad was an account executive. My mom was the art director. And we had a bunch of other people. Of course, this was a different time. This is, um, But it was... Uh, and a lot of my family are entrepreneurs in one way or another. And so I remember being in high school and my dad saying, 
so, um, you know, I hope that one day you will take this business over. And I'm like, oh, hell no. I'm not staying <laughs> in this small town in Ohio and doing this thing. And I remember, you know, I can remember now thinking he was a little crushed by that, you know, that I was not even considering it. But also I've done a lot of coaching in family businesses. And one of um, my uh, colleagues from grad school I'm closest to does a uh, teaches family business and universities. And I guest lectured in a bunch of her classes. And we talked about difficult conversations, which is something that if you're going to be in family business, you really mm -hmm. need to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, we've worked with family businesses in the course of our time mm -hmm. at Nobel. So the entire plot is set in mention because the founder, Logan, is medically incapacitated before there is a clear plan for after he's gone, which is not surprising because it's a touchy subject, right? Nobody necessarily wants to discuss their own impending death. How do you hold candid conversations about difficult topics? Well, it's not easy. And the first the first step in it is, of course, knowing that you have to do this, because generally people will sort of play out, especially with family members, will play out their childhood patterns of, and a lot of those patterns are about avoiding mm -hmm. topics that are going to be unpopular or cause stress. So that just even tackling it all and knowing all the things that you probably ought to think about, which you might, if you were in a non-family business, you might readily think about, but that you have to actually think about in a family business, such as succession, as you said, vision for for the company, um, some of the ways we naturally do things, because a lot of times, you know, families have their own cultures, and you just put the business ways into the family ways. But is that a good way? Who knows? Um, so just getting the courage to see a topic, the discernment to see a topic and the courage to broach it is really half the battle here. How do you become more courageous? Because I have seen a lot of people say, well, like, you have to have a difficult conversation. So just do it, right? Like be, mm. be courageous, speak up. <laughs> but there are, there are real implications for having those conversations, right? You might get fired from the board or you might irreparably damage relationships with your own family, right? So are there exercises that you can do or there are there tools that you can do to help work up the guts essentially to have these difficult conversations? I think one helpful first step is an alignment on like the why. So if we're thinking about succession, um, specifically in Logan, broaching that conversation is less about Logan, we want to push you out of the company, which is what it might feel like. Well, they do. They do. They do. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Um, but one way you could broach it is less about we want to push you out of the company and more about what do we do when this happens? We have to think about what happens next and how we keep the company running. So it's kind of aligning on the why and getting people aligned on that piece so that it becomes less of an emotional conversation and more of like the practical next steps and outcomes that have to happen. Yeah, exactly. When you're thinking about difficult conversations and making a decision whether to broach it at all, it, it ends up being sort of pros and cons for you saying, if we don't do anything, what, you know, what does st the status quo look like extended into the mm -hmm. future and being realistic about that because you, you know, in the moment, your intuition will tell you, well, if I don't do anything, nothing will happen. It'll be fine because it's fine now. But of course, that's, you know, if you see circumstances changing, it's not going to be that fine. Or it might be, right? If it's something that maybe you just are feeling some emotional pressure to broach, then that's the kind of thing you don't need to bring up. And so thinking about in the future, what will, what about the situation will change? And would it be, you know, how do we need to prepare for that is really a, a lot of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, one way to deal with a difficult conversation and decide if this is worth bringing up or not. Because a lot of times when, a lot of times people are worried about difficult conversations from the point of view of the, what is the, gonna, the person's reaction going to be. Mm -hmm. And a lot of time, the first thing out of their mouth is kind of unpleasant. Um, and one needs to be prepared for that. But at the same time, if you approach it with a lot of heart and humanity, then often, surprisingly, and, and don't make it personal, it's surprising how many times people will meet you where you're going with this rather than making it about, I'm going to give you some feedback about you and you're too old to run this company and we need you out of here. Not the way to broach it, right? You want to broach it more as in something that we both have a stake in. It's like, you know, I'm really thinking about the future of this company and I might, and my feelings about this are complicated and let's work them out together. You will often get a better result in real life. To summarize then, what are the steps of a difficult conversation? Well, so first noticing, 
that there's something amiss that maybe is an elephant in the room that we're not dealing with. And then deciding for yourself whether it's something that you really want to tackle or that is not worth it to tackle. And the, often by looking six months or six years down the road is, when, is partly how you decide that. And then at that point, it's about figuring out what, who you need to talk to and picking a time where people will be able to get, be, well, you'll be able to be present and they'll be able to be present and process what's going on so that, you know, you don't want to do it. You don't want to necessarily like bring it up at Thanksgiving over Turkey because maybe you won't have time to work on this. Maybe you won't be sitting next to each other. But if it's like after the meal and there's, um, everybody's sort of sitting around fat and happy and you say, um, this might be a time to, that might be a good time to work it out. Or not, because you still have to spend four days with people. <laughs> <laughs> Depending. Okay, so this is the first time that we've actually looked at a family business for this particular podcast. Mm-hmm. What are some of the challenges that are unique to leading or working in a family company as opposed mm-hmm. to a regular corporate entity? One big one that I've seen, and it, it rears its head a little bit here just in the first episode, but um, once succession is figured out and the, the owner founder steps down um, and someone takes over a sibling or another part of the family, often there is the like the loose thread still to the owner founder and they're still kind of like floating around the office, coming in, still kind of taking charge of things and leading things and that real change never happens or at least it doesn't happen immediately. It's a real process to actually have someone step back. What is the best way then to plan for a succession? What happens if a leader can't let go? It's a really good question. And that happens a lot. Or or as Jane just said, leaders say they're letting go, but then kind of don't. So, you know, we would recommend having those conversations early and often. So as, as, as the business is progressing, if it looks like it's going well and it's going then to to have that conversation baked into the into your business discussions is really part of it but if you have kind of slacked on that then um you know start it as soon as you can yeah and and i think not making the assumption that once the change is made and announced that it's like officially a clean break and this new person is in charge because there will naturally be remnants of people report like going to the wrong place for authority or decision making. Um, So having those conversations regularly and also at the outset of that, having the conversation around like, where does my new role begin and yours end? Like maybe you're still going to be part of the quarterly meetings to get a sense of how the business is doing, but you won't be part of the weekly meetings, that kind of thing. So there's a bit of balance. Right. Thinking about it in terms of what will happen, what won't happen, having maybe a transitional period. Mm -hmm. And also... um, and, and, you know, have it, that way, you, if you you also have a set of guidelines that you've agreed upon, then if it's not happening, you can go back. Then you have something to go back and say, hey, we agreed on this, but this isn't happening. Do we need to change this or are you going to yeah. try harder to retire? Yeah, because I think, I think we can all empathize that it's very hard to, like, give up on your baby and just say, here you go, especially to your child who you probably still see as a child. It's hard to now just, like, give them this multi-million dollar company to run without you. So Absolutely. It feels like Kendall, in an effort to impress his dad, has tried to adopt his same management style, which is cutthroat and mm. harsh and bro culture. But it doesn't feel like it's a really good fit. He doesn't naturally seem to be that kind of a person. So it doesn't match his leadership style. If you're a leader, how do you go about adapting yourself to a different culture? Or do you not? Is that just a bad fit and you should be looking for other options? I guess I'm also curious before we jump into that, I'm curious about your opinions. Do you think it's partly that people accept it more from Logan because he has been there forever? He's been in the position forever and people are like, okay, like he's been around for a while. This is just how he operates. But with the new leader, they're like, hell no, I'm not going to take this from his kid. I would expect a little bit more progressive action. Yeah, I think that's totally, totally right on with that. I think that's true to some extent, but I also think that Logan, he did a thing. Right. He has a real accomplishment. He has built up a media empire Mm -hmm. and made billions of dollars. And so I think people are willing to tolerate that because he has proven that it works. Whereas with Kendall and Roman and all the rest of the kids, like they've really achieved nothing outside of 
what they've done, right? What what has been handed to them? Yeah, yeah Logan has has hit, knows how to hit home runs, and these kids are born on third base. Right. I kind of love the moment. And I think it's in the first episode where someone's like, do you want to call your dad? It's like, <laughs> no, do you want to call your dad? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. So back to your good. original question. Oh, yeah. If you're a leader, how do you adapt yourself to a different culture or can you adapt a different leadership style? Yeah, I think it's a good question because I think a lot of leaders when they're new to it, jump into leading without thinking about like, not like formally, what are my, what's my three bullet philosophy, but something around how do I want to be viewed as a leader or remembered as a leader? So that initial first step of thinking about like, so hang on, what do I want my style to be? How do I want to be remembered? How will that look the same or different from someone who's already in the position? Absolutely. So that that kind of self-reflection is really necessary and it's especially necessary for senior leaders mm-hmm. because in the beginning as people are getting started like with their careers and their, their question is always, am I doing this right? And then the older you get, then it's more like, what am I actually trying to do here? What am I trying to serve here? What values do I align myself with? I mean, I'm sure that's good advice. I don't think Logan takes it. I don't think Logan really cares. I think he's just here to make money and be the biggest and the best. But the thing is that that in itself is a choice, you know? So if you're deciding, yeah. at some point you're deciding that you're not about these other things because they will come up. So that is a choice that yeah. you're making. His cho- I feel like his choices are fair. Like he has a pretty clear strategy of like never retreat, always go for the kill. Like it's, it is a pretty consistent mm-hmm. um, approach to how he handles business conversations. I'm also really curious about how you guys think that leadership style and the existing culture of Waystar plays into the changing of the guards. So Kendall and Roman actually do seem pretty interested in introducing innovation to Mm -hmm. the company, right? They're not interested in just buying up local TV stations. They think there's other technology data that the company should be investing in. What do you do when leadership is resistant to change or, as in the case of Logan, thinks they know best? That's a really tough one because, and I I love that they picked for this series to put it in media Mm -hmm. because that's something that everybody can feel around them is changing constantly. And um, so and so that's way better than having it be, I don't know, plumbing equipment or something <laughs> that we wouldn't be feeling all of the sure. the, the disruption yeah. on. So so that um, but that also is something that comes up because he's doesn't he's not really seeing the big picture in the new horizons the way the younger people are. They also picked it. They also picked media because writers are lazy, and I include myself in this. <laughs> and it's really just a ripoff of the Murdoch family and totally. some of the other major publishing companies, right? Like it's in the news. It works for and many so... reasons, and also those those chirons are hilarious. Have yes. you seen some of those headlines? Those are like straight ripped from BuzzFeed. Okay, so for people who don't know what a chiron is, because I only learned this like five years ago, <laughs> what is a chiron? It's the little headline that uh, that uh, trails across the screen as some talking head is talking on the news. Nice. See, look at that. Growing up in an ad agency did pay off. Not to mention all of our media clients at the moment. Yes, that's true. Well, we're not dealing with chirons. Yes, Jane. <laughs> so, so I'm thinking to your question about, so how do you introduce change when the leader is resistant? One, one thing you could try is, what we often recommend is let's pilot it, like try an experiment, find the small version of it, see if it's successful, see if it brings in revenue, and then you can scale it from there. Which it sounds like that's what Kendall is trying to do when he brings in Falter at the beginning of the show, um, which is a new media, like BuzzFeedy type type of company. The way they handle bad news at Waystar is, I think, also really interesting. So when Tom finds out about the cover-up that's going on at the cruise line, right, he, he gets his promotion, he's really excited, and then, and then suddenly he gets this really hit of bad news. He feels safe enough to discuss it with Kendall, right? He actually, his first instinct is not to bury it, but to go to Kendall and say, hey, I have a problem and I need to talk mm-hmm. to you. But then Kendall basically shuts it down saying that he doesn't want to know and Tom has to figure it out on his own. Uh, what's a better way, maybe, to deal with bad news? Well, you're going to want people to bring you bad news and not shut it down. So, the, the, you know, that's an interesting case because there were legal ramifications and everybody is in right. total CYA mode on the whole thing. 
you know, if if somebody had been willing to be brought bad news when this all got started 20, 30 years ago or whenever it was with the cruise lines, then they wouldn't have this big problem today. Mm-hmm. So if they could, so, you know, I, did we say what the problem was? The problem was that they had all these criminal incidents occurring on the cruise line and then they were, um, and that they were basically hushing up. That was our spoiler. Yeah, sexual harassment, murder. Murder, right? Yeah. I mean, geez. the big ones. They say. <laughs> the is big it, ones. Is it sad <laughs> that when I heard that, I was like, "Oh yeah, no, like that makes sense." Like I wasn't, I wasn't horror, but I'm like, "Yeah, people get murdered on cruises like, yeah, all the yeah. time." Like, <laughs> it's hard to imagine they don't if they, you know, people on in enclosed spaces. But anyway, the they um, if in the beginning there was a possibility of of bringing this up and handling it in a way that you know I'm sure everybody's worried about publicity and everybody was worried if it's very much in CYA mode because this company is constantly in CYA mode, then um, that would have nipped this problem in the bud and there would be processes and ways to deal with this you know unless we think that there's something about their cruise lines in particular that are causing people to go. Uh, you know, murder and murder crazed, murder crazed. Yeah, it's something <laughs> exactly that's that's specific here. But then you could have solved this. Well, you know? we yeah. do talk about how again the culture of your organization should be reflected in the culture brand. And so, I would not put anyone <laughs> in the Roy family above murder. In fact, it kind of sort of happens. I guess it's technically manslaughter by the end of the episode or by the end of the season. So, so yes, maybe Roy Co. actually does have a certain murderous uh, tint <laughs> to their cruises. I think what you're saying is that people look around them to see what happens when others raise a risky um, suggestion or red flag. And when they see that when someone else raises that red flag and gets shut down for it or even gets let go, they're not likely to do it again. And that's how these things stay quiet for so long mm-hmm. um, and how it se- sounds like it stayed quiet for so long here. And we saw it happen again, right? Like Tom raises it to, to Kendall. Kendall says, I don't want to hear anything else about it. And again, it stays quiet. And yeah, and we have to w- watch it as managers sometimes, like if, especially sometimes managers will get into the don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Mm-hmm. And that can also really inadvertently cause this kind of behavior where nobody wants to bring you a problem they'll just so the idea is that they should all take care of all their problems by themselves and pretty soon you have a 30-year dossier of terrible things happening that nobody knows about i didn't make this connection until this discussion right now but it is indicative right so we have the initial cover-up in the beginning where they're not talking about the cruises but then later on at shiv's wedding there is a scheduled rocket launch that uh, Roman wants everybody to watch because he rescheduled it and it's a rocket launch just for his sister's wedding, right? But, of course, it blows up horrifically. And instead of acknowledging the problem and coming to terms with it, he just puts his phone away and is like, oh, yeah, I didn't I didn't get any phone calls. No. Yeah. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Yeah. Shuttle launch. Went Shuttle great. Launch went great. Yeah. So there's a there's a real lack of a desire to deal with reality. And that's probably a result, again, of family dynamics where the bearer of bad news gets shot. Or it's a result of being really wealthy where, you know, bad consequences don't happen to people. That's true. That's true. That would play into it where you if you where you can cover things up indefinitely. Yeah. But that is a very different podcast. You could do a whole thing <laughs> on, on class. One of the interesting things I, I read while researching this episode is they were the the writers apparently sent a couple of episodes to somebody who is, let's say, more involved in this world, more in that upper echelon. And their feedback was like, yeah, they're wearing too many coats. Like these these are people who are never really cold Whoa. because <laughs> because they go d- directly from like the indoors to the chauffeured car, to the helicopter, and there's just not enough time to get cold. That's hilarious. They're always comfortable. Yeah. Wow. That is a great metaphor. And I was like, wow, I have a really different lifestyle than than most people. There's there's been a sidebar. There's been a lot of research about um, how really wealthy, how wealth changes people's psyches we could talk about that how does it change people's psyches um there's been a lot of experiments showing that people when they when they get again for your your idea about that people can cover up their tracks and that they are insulated from the consequences of their actions 
And there's been a lot of both experimental research and real-world research showing that people's empathy decreases when they gain in power and wealth. And um, so that really that is something like an observable experiment that I think they uh, a positive psychology lab um, in California did that was about going to a certain intersection and counting uh, which cars were more aggressive about going through. It was through. the BMWs. Well, as a BMW driver, I resemble that remark. But the fact is that all of the luxury cars, the ones uh, were um, far more aggressive drivers and did not wait their turn in a way that the, that the patterns of the lower price car, and I forget where they, where they called the price point on that, um, but the lower price cars, people driving those, waited their turns and were deferential and the people in the luxury cars were not my philosophy is I, I, if I'm crossing the street uh, I will look both ways if it's a cheap car but if it's a really expensive car I'll just walk straight ahead because if I sue them they'll have actual money to go after so that is life, life lessons from Paula <laughs> so, wow <laughs> <laughs> this is how I make decisions <laughs> The entire show is really about Logan playing his kids off of each other, right? He he definitely plays favorites. First, it seems like Kendall is the, the heir apparent, but then he tries to overthrow his father, and that goes out the window. Then in a secret meeting, Logan says, Shiv, I've always thought you were the smartest. You should come in and take over. Uh, should you try this at work? Is this a good idea? Of playing people off against each other, yes, whether siblings or not siblings. Oh, because it's it is one way to achieve power in an organization. You know, there's a whole line of research that is called careers as tournaments. That it's basically, you know, and again, for old school organizations where there is a hierarchy and where you will ascend the hierarchy, it's less so in a lot of flat organizations. Um, but the idea is that everybody is kind of playing to mm -hmm. jockey for the next position when it comes up and that therefore your your competition or the other people who could be considered for that position and that that's a lens through which people observe the, the people. It's a lens that people use for decision making about how they should comport themselves. Yeah. And we, we've definitely seen it happen. Like we've seen organizations describe themselves as a Hunger Games environment. <laughs> where people are being pit against each other versus like, usually people, don't, I feel like people don't describe it as a Game of Thrones environment as much, which means- We don't get to actually kill them most of the time. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess more so because I think in Game of Thrones, they're making the choice to vie for power. Yeah. Whereas we see a lot of Hunger Games where people are being forced to pit against each and other. I think that is a, that's a really great point. Um, I feel like that is actually the key component in making a competitive situation work at work. Mm. Is it opt in or is it your drafted? Because mm -hmm. if it's your drafted, that is, then it's war and you've got a real problem. Right. But if it's opt in, I mean, again, you're then you'll you may have a diversity problem because a lot of people will not opt into that because that's not the life they want to lead. Sure. But um, when people feel the thrill of competition and the um, and feel like it's sharpening people up and making people smarter and do their jobs better, it's usually because they're thinking about. Um, situations where people opt in rather than opting out. Right, yeah, and some cultures do thrive there. Some cultures and people thrive there sure, in the, the competition the, mode. The, yeah, the wolf packs among us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are the pros and cons of having this competitive nature, whether you're, you know, where you're pitting people against each other, and what are the cons of that? So the pros, um, Kim just listed a few of them, but I think it's you're always trying to be smarter, better, faster, and so there's a lot of progression constantly and being better at the thing that you're delivering. The cons, uh, like we talked about earlier, are the psychological safety and the ability to share with each other when things might be going downhill and just sharing information in general. Silos develop quite a bit. Yeah, exactly. And and if when be, and also you can just waste a lot of time on mm -hmm. office politics. Right. Because then you'll be doing a lot of things, you know, for the politics and not because it's the right thing to do or and so you it's it's actually fairly inefficient you you may make some efficiency gains by people thinking about this 24/7 and how to do it but you'll also lose some efficiency as people do things just to put on displays for each other and not to actually get the work done better yeah you're refocusing the us versus them internally versus us versus them the industry or us versus them like yeah. other companies in our similar market. Exactly. And also it does tend to lead to ethical breaches, oh, competitive well, situations. I mean, you know, <laughs> again, cruises. Yeah, I expect that. <laughs> <laughs> what you're measuring, you know, if, if, if they're 
are only a limited number of things you can get points for, you know, then heading off a situation before it develops will not get you any points, but solving it once it's dire will. And so there's going to be a lot of messes that you could have avoided. Going back to this point about how office politics requires a lot of time, while watching this show, I was really surprised about how a show that is in some ways about business succession, right? Mm-hmm. Very, very little of it actually takes place in an office or business environment. Like, okay, this is a TV show, and so obviously there are there are choices being made, and it's about the relationships. But I did think it was really fascinating. Like, there were whole episodes where I only took a few notes while watching it because it was about the relationships themselves, but not what was actually going on within the company. Yeah, I think that in general, business on TV, they, you rarely see them doing anything productive. <laughs> They're really making the sausage right in front of you. Yeah. But to your point, there is a lot of just like playing the game, like people people thinking to each other or or um, strategizing with each other, like, what's the play? What should I do next? What do I, where do I like um, win out in this conversation versus what do we do next for the business? And those happen in the informal environments. Yeah, because you also need all the drama there of knowing who's influencing who and why are they mm-hmm. doing it that way, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's, and there's just a lot less reading of extensive reports than perhaps <laughs> happens in real life. That's what I want to watch. <laughs> I want to see the prestige drama in which Making decks. Making decks. Spread- Excel spreadsheets. Pivot tables is where... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can make this a thing, you know, like watching people play video games. We can have watching people do things in Excel. That's a thing. Um, coding. People do live coding now. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Guys, this is going to be our trend. new YouTube channel. This is this, this is our, our passive income here. I'm out. <laughs> Not me. I thought it was also interesting the the scions are not really all that competent whereas the people who work in the organization actually seem like they are relatively smart accomplished driven individuals how do you deal with nepotism favoritism within the workplace cronyism privilege right all of i these mean things. yes yeah well i okay so box but it's, you know, meritocracy, not so much. That's real life. Aw. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, people who want to be meritocratic. Okay, that's but not, like, that's, that's I a, got here because of my hard work. Oh, obviously. And yes. because of your individual genius. I mean, yes. Uh-huh. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> oh, my God. Finally, there Finally, <laughs> somebody acknowledges. But you're wearing those Hoyas sunglasses over there. Or am I? We were earlier. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I will have you know those were free sunglasses <laughs> that I got from our our mixer. So, ah, uh-huh. yeah, the family at one point, uh, the family in one episode hires a corporate psychologist in an effort to address family concerns slash actually put on a PR front. Right. Like that's that's mm-hmm. what it's about. What did you guys think about his approach? I mean, the psychologist, what did you think about his attempts to unite the family? Hmm. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I I feel like they just, like, they need to talk to each other. And I think he was just trying to get them to talk to each other. And any amount of talking to each other would be better than what they have now, probably. It's true. The bar is low. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But they're a tough group to get started with. So it's hard to to judge his approach. It is a theme I've seen, like... um, we worked with a lot of startups and companies where there are co-founders and it's a theme I've seen lately where they do like couples counseling, basically like marriage counseling and they do it together with the counselor, which I found really interesting as a way to work on their relationship first before they work on their own leadership development. Yeah. I think that's, that's, um, you know, touchy feely as that may sound, that's actually really valid because if you have, um, you know, we, we see it in, in, couples relationships but I see it all the time at the workplace is that once you get to the point once your relationship has deteriorated to the point where you treat each other with contempt that relationship is over mm-hmm. and so all of the, st- the more cognitively based strategizing you're going to do is not going to happen if you can't if, if you're already at the con- if things have devolved the contempt phase 
How does our work, how does organizational design differ from the work that this psychologist is trying to do? Because a lot of times when we go into organizations and we, we interview people, we do a discovery phase to find out, you know, what are the issues? What are the things that people want to talk about? And inevitably, after we have those conversations, people say like, oh, I feel so much better. I feel like I just got out of therapy. Mm-hmm. But to be clear, we're not therapists. So like what makes organizational design different from a more traditional therapy? Well, the really, um, the quick and dirty answer about the difference between coaching and therapy is always that therapy is about making sense of the past while coaching is about figuring out what you want to do in the future. And they both have a place. And there will be some, uh, you know, you'll touch on what has happened before in coaching, but it's not about rewriting your story and coming to terms with things. Now, in the it, while you're going about coaching, which is what we do, trying to figure out how you what you want to do and how you want to change, there will be some rehashing. Mm. But if you let people marinate in that, then you really, I, you know, for for us, we're doing them a disservice because we're not therapists, right. and that that's not going to really bring people together and drive people forward. And that's really, I, I would say, what the basis of our work is, highlighting where alignment is, what. Um, what everybody agrees on is necessary because we do hear all the time that we're being like therapists, mm-hmm. but also what we hear all the time is, oh my God, I didn't know everybody else felt this too. Yeah. And then that makes a very firm basis to move forward on that you don't have to go back and relitigate the past over. I'm hearing a theme here between holding difficult conversations, thinking about succession planning, coaching, moving forward, it really all comes down to alignment. It is seeking that common ground Mm -hmm. and then figuring out how you can move forward, even if it's not perfect, even if it's not, I don't know, totally even flat ground, but it is, it is a a purpose or something that unites you to move forward. Absolutely. That's finding that alignment is so important and building on that. A lot of times people go down kind of a wrong path by trying to like, well, you do this and I do this. And there's just a difference between those two things. And that it's really hard to find alignment once you start going there. Yeah. I mean, you see it with the Roy family when Kendall threatens to, to uh, basically take over the business, they find alignment, the other Roy family members find alignment in the overall like purpose of not wanting to lose that family business and not wanting to lose their ownership over it and their their place in it um, and that does like although they normally bicker it that gets them aligned for the moment and to and to that point it's we often talking about concentrating on what you already have control or influence over rather than in the beginning everybody's always focused on all the things that they don't have influence over and they feel mad and victimized or Whatever it is. And so is when you start to focus on what you actually can do, that's kind of like focusing on alignment in a multi-person situation. And then that naturally tends to expand to include more things. So by focusing on alignment, by focusing on what you can control and where you are aligned, that, that, it, that sets you up for um, making that, for expanding that for later. We have been hired great news by Waystar. <laughs> they are bringing us into the organization for some uh, consulting engagement. What would you recommend? Where is the first area that you would start to work with them? I would say um, Waystar, like many companies at this size, has lost a bit of like identity. They do a whole lot of things. Um, and I don't think there's a... When they're deciding between TV uh companies and like doing something new and innovative there's not a clear strategy to lead that decision because there's no clear like we are this we do this we buy these kinds of companies so i i would say one of the like back to basics things is just like recentering on like realigning on what are we what is our identity what do we want to be for the next hundred years let's say so i'm sure that's logan's planning to to get to the next 100 to 200 years. Yeah, that's a, kind of a benchmark for family businesses. They call them centennial companies. That they're family businesses that have managed to survive for 100 years. Who are those? Would anybody would anybody recognize them? Yeah, there's a lot of family businesses that fall into that. So um, Anheuser-Busch is in that category. Is that still a family company? It hasn't been a family company the entire time, but it started out one. Okay. So that counts in okay. this world. doesn't okay. have to remain in private ownership. Oh, okay. Let's see. Like Levi Strauss, Cargill, 
Got it. But we're not saying they have to stay companies. No, if you if you had an IPO and became public, that would still be considered a success. Got it. Okay. Uh, any other Kim? Did you did you have any other suggestions for like where you would want to work with the company? Um, or maybe if you were if you were coaching Logan Roy, oh God. where would, where would you even start? Where would you even start? Um, it's you know honestly, it's I probably wouldn't start with coaching Logan Roy to be honest. I would start with Kendall. <laughs> Oh, mm-hmm. why why Kendall? Well, Kendall, you know, much is made of his personality characteristics of being, you know, having some weakness. Meh. Right. I know. He's got that thing. And the actor mm-hmm. does an amazing job portraying that. Because you can just, he really portrays the complexity of wanting to shore up his ambitious self and do the right thing, but having like, meh. But you know what? That's That's most leaders, you know, mm-hmm. honestly, is that there's parts where you really... Um, feel very confident and you're going forward and you know what you're doing and who you are and other parts where you're like uh. and so he's trying to live up to Logan and do Logan's style um, which is you know all killer instinct but he's living in a different world than Logan and he's a different personality than Logan and just trying to do it because that's what dad did is a terrible terrible reason to do it you should find a style that works for you and works in the current circumstances where you can go beyond what the legend has done so you don't want to just run around copying people and that's why I would start with Kendall you know, Logan, um, also, it's going to be very hard to persuade Logan that he needs any coaching because he kind of just goes and does things and he's the patriarch because he has so much power. Oh. So, Well, he's been right for a lot of the time. I he mean, that's, has. that's the problem, right? He, like he's been so successful. No one tells him no. Past mm-hmm. performance, not indicative of future success in a rapidly changing market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is an interesting point, right? It's the fact that while he was building his empire, the market was a fairly stable, right? It was maybe complicated, but not a complex market. And yeah, now with the rise of the internet, with more digital technologies coming on board, it has become a much more complex system. And so the same strategies and the same ways that you're approaching business will not work. Exactly. So... Assuming that like a succession has happened or, or a decision has been made for a company and the company is losing its initial head, the, the founder, the, the leader, the Logan, basically, sometimes those people are looked at as like the, the man who holds it all together or woman who holds it all together. And there's a fear that after that person, everything will kind of fall apart. Um, what is our advice to companies that are currently hitting that hump of like their first new leader in many, many years from their inception, basically? Uh, I don't know. know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great question because anytime there's a leadership change, people get really freaked out. So part of it is it's hard to imagine somebody else doing this position that has been so successful. But, you know, part of the problem with that is that actually nobody's that replaceable. Mm -hmm. Nobody's that irreplaceable Mm -hmm. is what I mean. Yeah. So, um, people, when, when it's time for a leadership change, people, you know, you're the, the, people being led the followers will tend to go along with doing the same things they did under the previous leader even if the new leader wants to set a completely different culture and is a completely different person and so we find that when there's been a leadership change and we're working with a new leader that often we have to remind them that this is going to take time they can't just legislate a new culture change Mm -hmm. even if they feel like they're bending over backwards to say and I want it to be more collaborative and I really want to hear what you're 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 interested in doing and I want us all to take more ownership if the last leader was autocratic it's just going to be a minute because they're used to getting punished for doing exactly what you've asked them to do so um, it takes a minute to get that new culture situated in and you have to align your behavior for example with the culture that you want to see I don't know if you can truly and completely deal with the the effects of being the follow-on and I mean that in the real world, if you look at Tim Cook, who has, you know, led Apple to great success mm-hmm. in the market, it's one of the most, it has so much cash on hand, right? It's one of the most successful companies in existence at this point. And yet everybody looks at him and they're like, well, yeah, but like there really hasn't been a hit. Sir, Steve, you know Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. He's just not the visionary. And, and there has been turnover mm-hmm. at Apple, right? And so, yeah, I mean... Tim Cook, who was handpicked by Steve Jobs, struggles, I'm sure, with yeah. with that that question. 
I'm thinking of, did you guys ever see the documentary Jura Dreams of Sushi? No, so, but no. I, I know of it, but I haven't seen it. Jura Dreams of Sushi is a documentary in which a sushi chef, Jiro, in Japan, um, he has one of essentially the best restaurants in the world. I mean, people travel from all over the world in order to go to his restaurant. And it's a little bar, essentially. Like, there's maybe eight seats in the entire restaurant. So very exclusive, very expensive. His son works in this business. And eventually, Jiro is going to retire and his son is going to take over and there's that pressure, but also it's it's impossible to live up to that standard. There was an interesting anecdote from the documentary in which a, a critic, a restaurant critic, went to eat at this particular restaurant and wrote it up and said essentially like, this is the best sushi that you will ever eat in your entire life. But I don't know what's going to happen when the sun takes over. It's just not going to be the same. Hmm. But here's the thing. They went the restaurant went back and they looked at like who was essentially the chef for that night and it was the son <laughs> right of course mm. and so i think i think it's just human nature i don't know if there is all that much you can do to necessarily affect the perception because yeah. you're either going to be like quote unquote trying to imitate that leader you're trying to live up to what it is or if you go in a another direction well oh well then you're just rebelling for the sake of trying to do something different right there's it's it's not a win-win uh, no it, it's a lose-lose situation no matter which way you go i think the best thing you can do as as a new leader is know who you are and develop a plan for what you want to accomplish and how you're going to execute that and then execute that plan to the best of your ability Again, focusing on what you can control as a leader and mm -hmm. what you can't control mm -hmm. as a leader. Let's say at some point, Kendall does convince Logan to leave either by force or voluntary. However that goes, what are some of the really important things to consider when transitioning between leaders? In any organization, when someone leaves, the rumor mill starts immediately. Like, oh, what happened? Why did they leave? What's going to happen? Who are they going to hire? Am I up for the position? <laughs> Is there a way that I could apply? All of those questions pop up in people's minds. So I think the sooner you can give away some information and even say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, so that people have a clear picture and avoid that rumor mill and avoid any narratives getting bigger and stickier um, would be helpful to you in, in the next steps too. Definitely, because in the absence of information, people make stuff up that is more interesting than what actually happened usually. Mm-hmm. Not in succession because it's a TV show. <laughs> no, it's true. It would be hard to, in many narratives these days, it would be hard to come up with something that is crazier than what's actually happening. Um, another thing is that when the lead, the new leaders come in, they often want to jump into making really big, big, fast, swift changes to demonstrate that they're doing something and not just, um, you know, standing at the steering wheel and not doing anything. Um, and so it's important to resist that temptation, especially if it, you want to touch the org chart. We find that we generally, as a general rule, we prefer touching the org chart last, if ever, and only doing it when there's um, a clear need for different reporting structures. A lot of things can actually be accomplished by getting different people in the room together talking, by working cross-functionally. Um, there's a lot of ways you can get stuff done and get um, new energy into the organization besides the org chart. But if you start with the org chart, then it just everybody gets really worried about what's going to what this is going to mean for themselves and their job and their responsibilities and their status and their power. And you don't need all that while you're starting out. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think one of the worst things that you can do is start hiring, promoting quickly because people want to know. Before you, like what we've seen at companies is sometimes a leader will bring in a bunch of people from their last organization without setting the vision for their company. And that'll leave people wondering, why wasn't I considered? What does this, like this new line of leadership actually mean? And what does it mean for me in my role? Um, and then even if you don't do that and you just promote someone internally without actually like spending the time talking to other people, it just creates that feeling of favoritism and, and lack of equity. If people don't really understand like, why was this decision made? Why wasn't I considered? What do I do next time to be considered? And, oh, shoot, I missed my chance. I better leave this organization so I can find another one that has a position for me. Let's actually talk a little bit about information sharing within organizations, because if this show is about anything, 
besides, you know, succession, it is about control of information and who knows what and what alliances are being formed and what information is being shared between and across those alliances. So what are best practices about information sharing within your organization? Because again, Royco, maybe not the best example of how to encourage a culture of transparency. Yeah, I think Kim touched on one of the biggest ones. Like when you when there's ambiguity around the information you can share, a lot of people default to not sharing anything. And then these stories just develop and narratives develop. And the thing that you can do to avoid that is just talk about what you do know and what you don't know. So if, it, if for example, you're setting the vision for 2020 and you're not sure exactly where that's going to land yet, which is okay. Well, not really. I mean, we're in the studio and it's October 2019. <laughs> so you, for you 20, need to... 2021. Oh, okay. All 2021. Right. We'll give you a little Thank bit you of for slack. That. <laughs> 2021, let's say, and you're not sure where it's going to land yet, you can say what you know the company won't be or what directions you know you won't go into just to give people some sense of where you're landing. Yeah, that's a good one. And, you know, what you do at the top with information is really sets the tone. And so it's really it's there's there's going to be in every leader and manager's life some things you really can't share because you can't have it get out. And it's you know, but it's important to also consider the things that you can because people are hungry for information and um if they don't get it they if you don't want to set a precedent for people not sharing things that are probably shareable and so that's a place where openness and vulnerability can really help the culture of an organization there's a scene in episode eight in Prague where they talk about negotiation tactics, and it looks like at first the two sides are going to be able to come to a successful deal. They're going to close and everybody's going to walk away happy. But before the deal is closed, Logan basically stops and he says, no, this, they're, they're smiling. This isn't working. we got to make them squeal. How would you approach negotiation under these circumstances? <laughs> is that the right way to approach negotiation? What would you recommend? You know, a lot of people approach negotiation as that if you aren't, if the other person isn't in pain, you're not doing it right. Um, and there is some reason to believe that there are some points in negotiation. Like if, if you don't trust your the person you're negotiating with, then um, showing teeth and being a little angry can can help. But if, on the other hand, you people tend to get a lot more value out of the win-win negotiations. And... If you take an, if you are getting your MBA and taking a negotiation class, they will the very first thing they will do is try to get you out of that competitive mindset of less pie for you means more for me, and into how can we expand the pie? How can we both um, you know optimize things that we want without taking from each other? Because you need to have that as a, as a tool in your toolkit if you're going to get anywhere. And how do you build alliances at work? Right, a lot of the time we talk mm -hmm. about how yes, you should do what you can to make change within the organization, but you need to look at your sphere of influence. Who can you bring along with you? So how do you start building those alliances? One of the things that you can do um, early in building alliances is figure out who your stakeholders are, who you need to build alliances with, and when you're early in the relationship, find out what they need and what small wins you can figure out towards those needs. Like what can you do to help them before you even start, start talking about what they can do to help you? Last question, who if anyone, do you think should inherit Waystar? Ooh. Ooh, good question. Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, just kidding. Sorry, Greg. <laughs> um, I don't know. I really, I like Shiv a lot. She seems smart. We don't get to see her like uh, full out in business mode. I, I think that happens more in season two, but she seems smart and um, never posed to a female leader in a previously like pretty male dominated leadership group. Um, and it, I think I'm going with her right now because we've seen the weaknesses of her brothers more than her just yet. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I'm sure we're going to get that question partially answered in season two. Yep. I'd have to go with Shiv. Yeah. Tell us why. Um, I, I think, well, it's hard to add to your very good answer about how we haven't seen as much weakness from it. She seems a little bit more level-headed. Mm -hmm. um, one research has recently shown us that when um, 
women leaders are in charge, things are a little bit less run all about people's egos. Hmm. Um, there's a little bit more of a, a communal aspect. This is, you know, perhaps an overgeneralization. We can't say that she is definitely one of these people who will do that, but that is a research trend. So um, this family could sure use, even if it's 1% more of that, that right. would be a, actually a big difference. So I say Shiv. Oh, that's fascinating. I can't stand Shiv. I think she, <laughs> I think she's terrible. I mean, they're all terrible. They are. Terrible human beings. But I don't think Shiv is as smart as Shiv thinks she is. I don't think she's that impressive. And I think they're all cowards. That's what I keep watching this. So when I watch shows about the British monarchy, which I know seems like it would be really different, but I'll, uh, you'll see. The, it all wraps up. Well, monarchy is definitely not different than a family business in a way. Yeah, I guess, I guess it really, is. They're really I guess not. it is the family business. It's the family business. Uh, yeah, but so when I watch shows about the British monarchy, I I love him, but I also like spend half my time screaming at the screen like, why are you doing this? Like, you don't need a monarchy. Just walk away. <laughs> All these problems yeah. that you're facing, which will drive the drama, you can just let it go and it will no longer be your problem. And that's how I how I feel about all of the Roy siblings. I just want to shake them and be like, walk away. Like, go do something else and cut your really abusive father out of your lives. You will be much better for it. Yeah, but but as the you know older brother says at one point, he's like, any idiot can have five billion dollars. We can be someone here. Like this gives us a name, just like what they care about too. Yeah, there's there's been I was reading a really good research roundup on this in the New York Times. I was talking about why don't people have billions of dollars just stop working and enjoy life, right? And I don't even need a billion. (laughs) (laughs) And the answer was exactly what you said, Jane. It was that people are. kind of addicted to the game there's at that level there's a great disparity in wealth that they even if you have like a billion dollars you're like yeah but bill gates has 40 billion um that keeps people in it and so it would. i know that's why i keep showing up (laughs) (laughs) and so you it kind of keeps you in it for your social status um and giving up would really feel like like loss Mm -hmm. at that point so I agree with you. They should all just walk away, and they're mm-hmm. also terrible people. Um, but that's also, I just want to say, anybody watching this, basically you can take anything that they do and do the opposite of that and be in better shape as far as business ta- tactics for the way they treat each other. Can you give me just one example? <laughs> well, the way they do difficult conversations, they come in with both guns blazing and <laughs> making it extremely personal and making fun of people. Don't do that. Oh, okay. What should right? I do instead? You should instead, you know, come in having considered your position and thinking about the humanity of the other person and talking, trying to have some straight talk that allows them time to, in, it includes them in the outcome that, that you want um, and give them time to process. And basically that would, of course, be like watching grass grow. And that's why it's not like this on the show. Yeah. I personally really like Stewie. I think he's a street shooter and that he's upfront about what a terrible person he is. I mean, there's there's a great scene in which Kendall is talking to Stewie and he's like, I can trust you, right? And Stewie's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And Kendall's like, no, but but I can trust you, right? And he's like, no, you should not trust me. Yeah. And he is indeed not a trustworthy figure, but he's at least upfront about that. Yeah. That actor is great, too. He plays him so, like... Um, he has such a nice face on him when he's saying, no, you can't trust me. <laughs> it's great. Can I just say my least favorite character is Roman. I, that guy. He's a creep, but I I like the way that Kieran Cullen, Culkin plays him. Yeah. I think it's a, he's, he's an entertaining character to watch. I agree. I agree. He only gets more entertaining for me. Um, with season two, I think my favorite is Tom. I just like love Tom, Tom like getting running yeah. into trouble and figuring oh. it out. He's the best. Ugh, Tom is. <laughs> I I've heard the internet. I think right now is on like the Tom and Greg show. Like they want Tom and Greg to oh take over the entire enterprise. <laughs> last time I checked, but you know, one one last thing is I was reading as I was starting to watch this. I was like, is this a drama or is this a comedy? And it mm. turns out I am not the first person mm-hmm. to wonder about that. What do you guys think? 
Well, really, Kim, mm-hmm. isn't every drama uh, a comedy with enough time and distance in between? <sighs> comedy or tragedy? Yeah, it's just a distance question. I think they're purposely trying to make it like a little bit of both um, to not make it just a, a dry show about the Murdochs. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. or a soap opera like Dallas. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually, I would say season two gets like a lot lighter. To me, season one feels darker and like a bit drier even even than um, season two. Season two feels lighter and like a little bit more hijinksy to me. Easy question. What are you guys thankful for? Aww. Thanksgiving. <laughs> Aww. Well, I'm thankful for you guys. Yes, Aww. you guys. It's true. <laughs> I'm thankful for four days away from you guys. <laughs> which is kind of Classic. the same thing. <laughs> Kim? Uh, there's so much to be thankful for. Um, I cu- keep coming back to being thankful that I, well, okay, I live in Los Angeles and it's awesome and I love it here and I never want to go back to Ohio. So I'm thankful for that. Go back to Ohio. Oh, <laughs> in your dreams, Paula. <laughs> Not what I dream about, but okay. <laughs> um, and I'm really thankful to be working in an industry where I feel like I can have an impact on the way things and make people's lives better. Yeah, ditto. Yeah. Plus one. And of course, we want to thank you, our listeners, for listening to Work of Fiction. You can check us out at workoffiction.fm. And don't forget to like and subscribe. We'll see you next time. We we hope we were a nice respite from some tense family dinners this Thanksgiving. (laughs) Go get that extra pumpkin pie now.